Kia ora and welcome to CircuitCast. My name is Danny McIntosh and today you're listening to part two of a three-part podcast series called Sites of Connection. In this series, I speak to three artists working at the intersection of filmic language, poetry and metaphor. My guest for part two of Sites of Connection is Selena Ashadi. Selena is an artist whose moving image works inhabit a poetic and experimental space, often employing handicam footage, diaristic voiceovers, and ethereal soundscapes. Kia ora, Selena, and welcome to CircuitCast. Kia ora, Danny. So happy to have you here in conversation. I thought we'd go through your works in a chronological order just to kind of get a a grounding in your progression in your practice. And I thought we'd start with Hollywood Ave, which is the first work I saw of yours back in 2019 at the symposium that Circuit put on and was just extremely taken with the intimacy and vulnerability in that work. It's around 30 minutes, kind of in a documentary style of Handycam footage. The opening scenes I remember are quite eerie in that it's you looking from the outside into the kitchen through a window at someone who I assume is your mother chopping vegetables, preparing a meal. That kind of sense of intimacy and close connections carries on throughout that film and we also get a sense of, with that connection, the disconnection between your family in Aotearoa and in Iran. I wondered if there was a particular event that made you want to make this work and to document that point in time. Yeah. So I made Hollywood Ave, I guess, for my master's at Elam. And I have to admit, I went into that not really knowing what I was doing at all. I think what has become a bit of a theme in my process and in my work is a lot of groping around in the dark and embracing that sense of searching and not knowing. I guess a, a key moment in that in that searching was rediscovering old VHS home movies sent to us and a whole box of letters that were sent over in the, I guess, the first few years that my immediate family immigrated to Aotearoa. Yeah, I became really fascinated with these like archival traces of departure and these kind of attempts to bridge that distance. There were some early attempts that dealt with the material a little more directly, and I just never felt quite comfortable around being too direct with this really personal correspondence. I suppose that's where the approach of of kind of approaching it a bit more elliptically and playing with this tension between a certain intimacy and a certain sense of withholding or, or distancing. Within my master's research, I was very much looking at the work of Chantal Ackerman, which I think is quite evident in that work. Her work became quite integral in that whole process, especially in kind of thinking about how you navigate such such personal material. Yeah, so I guess that's sort of the origin story of a part of the film, but there's another layer as well, 
which involves the rather, I imagine, quite bemusing element in the film, which is the rebuilding of a wall in my mother's living room. I guess early on in the project, once the project started taking shape, I had become quite interested in the, I guess, the mise-en-scene of an archway in the middle of this very small confined home for no real reason other than I just like the look of it. My mother decided to spontaneously one day knock down the wall before I was able to start filming. And I was kind of disappointed. I was like, oh, damn, I really wanted to have that kind of archway to frame and to create a sense of a cave or a kind of sense of intimacy within the space. I don't even, it's all kind of a blur, but for some reason, my mother and father decided to re they were like well let's just rebuild the archway let's in this really ad hoc way almost like create a set within the house and I became really interested in this idea of kind of recreation and the sense of kind of artifice and construction within within the frame and playing with I guess a more straight documentary which claims to to represent some kind of truth with recreation, with restaging an event, an event that you weren't able to capture, that you you missed the opportunity or there was a kind of a failure to capture a moment. There was this strange, almost surreal layer added to the project where the whole family kind of came together to recreate this rather absurd archway. There's sort of that that duality between the building and the remaking of the wall. Because as a viewer, we don't know whether the wall's disappearing or or being built. Mm. And then the conversation between your relative and your mother and the the kind of sense of missed opportunities that they keep holding on to. I wondered if you could talk about how you play with that sense of time in the film. Yeah, no, that's a really good question because there is a real, it's definitely like an unfolding of time in terms of this anachronistic letter being overlaid red, you know, 30 odd years later. And it's still in a sense speaking to or reverberating within this or that present moment of of recording or almost responding, a delayed response to the letter. So I think I was playing with time in, in that way. I think I also really wanted to quite literally play with duration within the film to slow things down and to kind of create more meditative pace where there is kind of the sense of dwelling, you know, there, there are all these ideas around dwelling, like, like what is a home? How do we make homes? How do we inhabit homes? Yeah, I became really interested in this kind of, this concept of dwelling. And also, I guess this concept of home also relates to unhomeliness or the uncanny and a kind of sense of haunting as well. I was striving for this feeling, a simultaneous kind of feeling of an attempt at homemaking, but also the impossibility of that as well. So I think that's kind of 
digressed from your question around time, but I think there's always when we talk when we're speaking about haunting, that's always related to time in some way. Shall we talk about your next work? Amateur, made in 2019, another 30-ish minute documentary style, also filmed on a handy cam, but this time by your collaborator, Azita Chigini. For anyone who hasn't seen the work, it was filmed in Iran, I think in Tehran city, down where there's scenes in a taxi driving through the busy city in traffic. There's scenes down in the old town in Tehran, I think, and also in domestic spaces with friends and family and relatives. And then there's these moments in the desert and in the mountains where there's this kind of release of like energy, but also spatially. And Azita reflects on how much the mountains have changed since she was last there because the film is kind of grounded in her own voice. She narrates it and takes us through. I wondered how this collaboration between you and Azita worked. I mean, again, that started from a place of really absolute unknowns. I had, I think a year earlier, written this text that was published in Femisphere Zine. And it was a text which I guess the the premise or structure of it was a conversation with my aunt walking through the mountains. And it kind of orbits this Iranian poet and filmmaker Furukh Farakhzad. So in some ways, when I kind of conceived of this very vague idea for Amatur, I had this kind of text as a kind of signpost or a coordinate. And alongside this was a photograph of my mother in quite enigmatically, but also sort of triumphantly standing on top of a mountain in the Alborz mountain range, which surrounds Tehran. So these were the two kind of fragments or clues that I had for this film. And the original idea was for me to go myself back to Tehran and to do the filming. All I really knew was I wanted to film the mountains and to piece together this story. But that unfortunately didn't happen. My mum had already planned to go back home to visit her family and it all happened very spontaneously. I would love to say that a lot of deep thought went into it, but literally I was like, here, take my handy cam and I will give you these directions from afar of what to capture, what to shoot. Yeah, in a sense, there was just a, a, a relinquishing of control, which I'm always really interested in, allowing for chance and accident to kind of enter the frame or to to kind of guide the making. And so my mother became the camera person, but also the mediator for, for me to be able to access this place. Or initially that was the idea. And I guess the, the direction I had given her was, 
take long kind of static shots. So when she came back with hours and hours of footage that was shaky, fleeting, often the camera was left on becoming like an eavesdropper or a a form of like self-surveillance. I initially was like, I just have no idea what to do with this. And in a sense, I guess the film sort of made itself where I had to listen or I had to pay attention to to what was brought back rather than try to force a kind of narrative onto it. And it just became very clear that this was my mother's story, really. And so the way that I responded to it was to kind of sift through and piece this together in collaboration with her. And again, going back, back to Chantal Ackerman, I was really interested in this this comment of hers when she made Jean Dielman. She talked about kind of using the shots that normally end up in the trash can of cinema. That became a kind of way of approaching the piecing together this film as well. Like, well, why are these shots not usable? What is it about them that is not adequate or I suppose, kind of a mess. Somebody actually recently said to me, I really loved the film, but it's visually a mess. And so I think I, I was trying to embrace that. Yeah. <laughs> and hence, hence the also the titling of the film, Amateur, which was borrowed from Maya Deren's really wonderful essay on the amateur filmmaker. So really just em- embracing the imperfections and the attempts and the failures. Yeah, it's wonderful in that way. And I guess as an audience, we're really let into that narrative through what Azita is talking about. And I wondered if you could speak a little about how you and or Azita came up with the narrative, the kind of written element in that work, because it feels very much like her words Was it envisaged at the time or was it a kind of reflection on the film that you ended up creating with her? Yeah, she didn't write it at the time. When she came back with the footage and I was going through it, I I guess I just asked her if she wanted to write something and I didn't even at that time know that it would become a voiceover. I think she wrote a sentence down and I just thought it was just such an evocative and interesting sentence reflection I think that's where she was writing about this concept of the foreign object and so it kind of grew from there and the way that the text was composed or written was very much in collaboration with finding these the image And I guess I I am really interested in the artifice of storytelling as well and complicating any kind of straightforward narrative, especially ones that claim to be diaristic or or true. So it's a constructed diaristic voiceover, really, but I really wanted to allow her to tell her own story. But, you know, there were prompts as well. So I would ask a question or invite, like, her to reflect experience and so yeah we kind of wrote it together in a sense 
That's so cool. <laughs> and you did mention the the poet because you included an excerpt of the poem Another Birth. And it's really interesting that uh, she had her poetry banned for a decade by the Islamic Republic in 1979. And so I wondered if you and your mother were aware of art making in Iran being something that maybe was more of a political resistance? Yeah, I think even before the revolution, like when she was writing in the 50s, and I mean, I am no expert. I, I would never claim to actually know all that much about her work and her experience. But from what I do know, she was controversial from the outset when she was writing. And it was very much because what she was writing about was so from a woman's perspective in a very visceral embodied way in a way that really acknowledged the complexity of being and of desire and the messiness of it and I think from what I understand as well and this again is through my mother and through reading other people's words and work it came up against the real kind of duality of and I don't want to make any generalizations here, but lack of Iranian culture at the time, which you put out a particular kind of public persona or life, but then, you know, you, you didn't really reveal the internal private lived experience. So here was this woman poet who was putting out in the open the, this interior life. And her, yeah, her poetry is incredibly central and erotic. Yeah, and in terms of kind of resistance, I think, you know, she has become quite kind of a patron saint of, of that. And what really fascinated me as well about Uruch Farukhzad's work is not only her poetry, but also the fact that she in some ways is kind of one of the pioneers of the essayistic experimental film form. But unfortunately, because she died so young, she only had the opportunity of making one film, which is called The House is Black. The interplay and exploration of the image and of language and of a kind of non-linear, unconventional approach to storytelling, especially in relation to documenting reality I just found really inspiring so yeah thinking about yeah genealogy as well not just from like a familial perspective but also from an art making or filmmaking or creative perspective as well she if she felt really important in terms of that kind of genealogy let's talk about the hands also look which you made in 2020 it's an hour-long very experimental work, which is framed with two prominent images. The first of a city in the snow, and you see people playing in the snow and cars trying to navigate around this very, very deep snow. And then it moves to cartoon birds flying across a like beautiful cityscape. 
And then the end of the work is a image of a hand coming out from a duvet in a bed, which slowly materializes kind of as if from a dream. But the predominant image that we see is a dark black screen, which is the majority of the work. And we hear your voice and you're recounting memories, talking about your grandmother and your mother, recalling wanderings and passing thoughts and sifting through dreams and works of literature and quotes and unpacking those and moving on to more fantastical thoughts sometimes. And my my first question is, why have you chosen to withdraw the image in so much of this work? Yeah, thank you. That was really beautifully articulated. There are a few reasons why I was interested in the absence of the image. I mean, first and foremost, I was really struggling. I was I was kind of experiencing a creative block, which had coincided um, and not just the big um, hyper object that was COVID and the pandemic and the first lockdown, but also personal loss. And I think at that time as well, I there was this question around this imperative to produce, particularly in relation to images. There's such a profusion of images in our contemporary culture. So that was one strand to that, quite literally a creative block, but also I was really interested in decentering the eye as the primary mode of perception, particularly within the film space or a moving image space. And as with many of my other works, I'm often really indebted to other people's films or writings. And in this particular case, I mean, as you've mentioned, it's vastly intertextual, but a central influence on the work was Derek Jarman's film Blue. And what is so radical about it is the absence of the image. This is where I became really interested in working very closely with a very good friend of mine, Francis Lebeau, who is an incredible sound artist, musician, performer, poet, sort of collaboratively working together to create a really rich and textured sonic realm and kind of proposing that as a cinematic space. I think at the time I had, I was really interested, I was just watching a lot of movies and listening to a lot of audiobooks and conversations and I'd encountered this conversation with this really brilliant filmmaker, Lucrezia Martel. She was talking about how sound is the the only three-dimensional aspect of a film. And that really struck me, thinking about the way that sound can kind of completely fill that space into the body of the audience and the viewer sensorial but then it's psychic it's spiritual it kind of there's something about it really a porosity right that enters 
the body. I was really interested in in that and kind of subverting the notion of what an image really is because I was filming this kind of void space. The camera was recording, but there is no image because the light hasn't filtrated the room yet. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm retrospectively really making sense of it. At the time, it was just a sense of searching that was coming through this. I didn't quite know what the result would be, but it was definitely this instinct to really dwell in this void space and the potential that that represents or holds. And I actually think that it's connected in some ways or in many ways to my previous work, which is always in some way reticent or approaches the image in a way that is indirect, elliptical, or there's an element of uncertainty around whether or not this should be documented or recorded. And which which work are you referring to when you talk about your previous work? Yeah. Amateur and Hollywood Ave. Mm. You know, both of those works in their own way approach, I guess, autobiography or approach the act of documentation in a way that is not direct, uh, in a way that is always kind of questioning the ethics, I guess, involved in in taking an image. Yeah, so I think this kind of took it to the extreme. You spoke about the potential of the void. My experience of watching The Hands Also Look was that with this dark screen, seemingly absent of the image, I was kind of transported back to a childlike space where I would listen to my grandparents or my parents reading me stories, which I really loved about that work, that it could do that. And I wondered if that was part of your intention, that kind of storytelling element or childlike, maybe nature of of things. Yeah, definitely. Something I actually didn't mention about Amator was the importance of this line in all Persian folk tales and fairy tales, which I was thinking about a lot at the time. It's kind of the equivalent to Once Upon a Time. The phrase is yekibud, yekinabud, which roughly translates to mean one was, one was not. And I feel like that's it's very open to multiple interpretations, but one that I was really interested in was this acknowledgement from the outset of the story that's being told that this is just one version. This is the one was, but there's the one was not, which is shadowing it or haunting it. I mean, that's something I'm I'm always thinking about in each of these works, which actually I think are all just connected. They're all kind of the same work being retold, that there's always absence, right? Absence and presence are inextricably linked. So for me, that was like a really guiding idea in relation to telling this these stories rather than just one singular story. It was 
as you've pointed out yourself, this kind of patching together, all this collaging, this weaving together of these many different types of stories. And I would say that there's stories across different kinds of storytelling traditions. So, and and just going just ref- going back to the mention of childhood, I don't know if I was intentionally trying to create that space that you have described that is also very familiar to me but I think on some unconscious some level I was absolutely trying to recreate that space that kind of liminal space between Mm. you know being awake and asleep Mm. you know where it's just full of like imaginative possibility and potential but it's also quite meditative, right? You know, if we think about that as a way of drifting off into this unconscious space. I think at the time I just really wanted to create something that was really soporific that would allow people a space to just slow down and invite them to to fall asleep, to dream, to to kind of restore their nervous systems even. And this is something Francis and I were talking about at the time. And I can't speak too much to their process, actually, but a lot of the kind of sonic textures that they were sort of composing and and themselves collaging together in response to the, the diaristic text that I was weaving together myself was really thinking about the effects of sound on the body so there's like some really interesting drone sounds there's there are field recordings there are there's you know sounds of birds insects planes but then there's these kind of abstracted sonic textures which were really meant to kind of create a trance-like meditative effect and just kind of thinking about that you know these different oral storytelling traditions I was also really interested in the nested stories of A Thousand and One Nights, which actually I had no idea up until this morning (laughs) that Derek Jarman was interested in that as well with Blue, thinking about Shahrazad. So the framing story of A Thousand and One Nights is that Shahrazad is telling stories every night to the king in order to delay her execution. And so this kind of idea of this profusion, this unfurling every night of stories as a kind of mode of survival was really interesting to me. And also I found it quite fascinating that I've always been more interested in the framing story of Thousand One Nights than the actual tales within. That has always been a really evocative kind of structural framing device and I think it kind of speaks to the fact that I'm just really interested in process I think throughout my work there's always a kind of reluctant to use the word meta-narrative but I'm just going to use it or kind of you know the the process is it's made visible within the film work and the writing as well and the work for me was very much about someone let's call them the narrator, who is in a perpetual state of inquiry 
who is is really searching is kind of attempting to find orientation and using these coordinates through story through yeah more mystical kind of frameworks of knowledge and it's broken up with these coffee readings three of them which kind of act like chapters or breaks or yeah okay let's talk about the coffee readings um, <laughs> cool I was really interested in the coffee readings mm-hmm. as a form of like finding navigation, finding orientation, but through, I guess, a divination or mystical frameworks. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was, I think it was a way of bringing Im- images, very vivid images into the work as well. And again, not everyone is able to see these images. It requires a real gift and there was a connection there, I think, between the fact that my mother has impaired vision, but she has this ability to see these these incredible images and to construct these stories as these images are appearing to her in the cup and the and the residue of the coffee, which itself is like a kind of void space, you know. In the work, you mention the poetic device fugue, which refers to when I think it's two voices work together in building like a central motif. And I wondered whose voices are in the hands also look. Mm. I feel like there are many voices. There's obviously my mother's voice my grandmother's voice. There are the many kind of literary references that are woven in. There are friends' voices. So I think I could be wrong, but I think a fugue can be more than two voices. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think something really interesting, I've kind of returned to this idea of the fugue or the art of the fugue Mm -hmm. and how indeterminate it is. And that I think when Bach wrote it, it was unfinished, and that it could be reinterpreted in many different ways. Now, I'm sure that anybody who is really experienced with music might disagree with what I've just said, but that's my understanding of it. And actually, I was really interested as well in the etymology of the word fugue, that it, I think it's rooted in the Latin fuga or fugere, which means flight. And then there's the psychological category or or diagnosis, which when someone enters a fugue state, there's a flight from their identity. Mm. So there were these different layers that I was really interested in. Again, it was shrouded in uncertainty, but just kind of following these instincts. So yeah, the work is in a sense very polyvocal, and you know it is my voice that is channeling these other voices but I think I was also really interested in that idea of again haunting you know actually when I was making Amateur there were quite a few films that I was watching and that I was really holding in my mind while I was making that and then revisited with the hands also look but one of them was Laurie Anderson's The Heart of a Dog I mean, that film itself is 
really concerned with how we tell stories. And I think Laurie Anderson mentions how creepy stories are and how there's always a construction and an erasure going on where other perspectives and other voices are erased from the story we're telling, what we remember, what we forget, what we misremember, how we kind of shape a story to serve our own purposes. So that work was really with me in this making. And at one point in the film, she quotes that very famous David Foster Wallace line, every love story is a ghost story. I was thinking about that and really interested in the fact that ghost, guest and host are rooted in the same word. They will share a genealogy. And so I, I kind of, I guess, in a sense, this this unfolding, this diaristic unfolding has many ghosts in it, in this kind of fugue piece that's created ghosts, guests, hosts, visiting and revisiting, thinking about this idea of visitation as well. Yeah, as a kind of haunting. Yeah. So no, thank you for bringing up fugue. I am very obsessed with the idea of fugue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's it's a it's a perfect way to talk about this work. I'm kind of interested though for the work that I'm working on at the moment to explore the relationship between moving image and your musical composition further, but through non-Western. Um, music so like really thinking about I guess Middle Eastern scales and music within mystical Sufi traditions and the idea of the ecstatic trance entering a trance kind of state which is all about kind of repetition and accumulation and I think that's really inherent in the hands also look but also the work that I'm developing at the moment and and that work is called the blue dome is that right? The Blue Dome is it's kind of like a, a new, I don't even want to say new, but an iteration of the hands also look. Mm-hmm. And I mean, earlier we were talking about, you know, when is the work finished? And I just am really interested in revisiting, again, visitations, revisitations, revisiting work, and just like thinking about the life of, that work as ongoing and subject to change. I guess really resisting anything that's too rigid or solid and thinking about a kind of fluidity or an amorphous quality. Again, I guess it's a kind of fugue in a way. Yeah, so thinking about like how it is just another retelling or a kind of performance very much in the kind of traditional tradition of oral storytelling that these stories are repeated over time and through that kind of repetition through that performance of the stories they change they lose something but then they they gain something new and you know different voices Mm. tell the story as well i wondered if in this work because it seems differently structured to the hands also look and the the fragments themselves kind of 
almost remind me of like the structural stanzas in a poem. And I wondered what the kind of relationship between, if any, your works and poetry there is. The inability to neatly put experience into language is really like at the heart, I think, of poetry and it makes space for the silences and for the gaps and it isn't necessarily linear. It's not a, a linear structure, I don't think, or it doesn't have to be. And and this I think to me there's a really like interesting, exciting kind of conversation between yeah, poetic structure, form, strategies with within moving image and film. And again, I think it comes back to just resisting any kind of resolute answer. Yeah, resisting closure, resisting a, a tidy, easy way of of telling the story. I think it's ultimately about coming closer to feeling or, or yeah, trying to create a feeling over any kind of exposition, any kind of answer. And I think ultimately that's what my inquiry is or what my work strives for. Whether or not it, it achieves that, I don't know, but that's, I think that's what's really driving it. <laughs>